Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The U.S. is one of the few countries that uh, even though we export about 2,500 kids out of the U.S. for adoption into other countries, it's expected that those children get citizenship in those countries that they're exported to. But when the U.S. imports kids, they don't give them citizenship. Doesn't make sense. This is Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media in support of the film Blue Bayou. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos, founder and editor of Diaspora. In this five-part series, we're hearing real stories from men and women who were internationally adopted by Americans and spent their entire lives completely unaware that they were not American citizens themselves until they were sent away. This is a heartbreaking reality that affects more than 35,000 adult adoptees in the United States. And yet, the majority of Americans have no idea this crisis is happening for so many. Their stories deserve to be heard. This is Christopher Larson's story, in his own words. My name is uh, Christopher Larson. Uh, I am a 50-year-old Vietnamese-born um, and currently reside in Seattle, Washington. So in 1975, during the fall of Saigon, when the communists was taking over Vietnam, I was evacuated during Operation Baby Lift. Uh, they think that I was about four years old, since I didn't have any type of documentation. They just kind of guessed on the age. Since adoption started around 1954, right after the Korean War, that's when the big adoption boom started happening with the U.S. and Korea. And, and it was due to, to kids being war orphans, basically. And so when we have a child that is a war orphan, a lot of times those documents aren't available. So it's hard to prove identity. It's hard to prove age. And one of the ways that they will try to prove the age is by looking at, at, the, at the dental of the child themselves, um, because certain stages of, 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 of your years, your, your dental work should be at, at a certain place. And so with my case, that's, that's how they determine my age, just by my dental records. During the fall of Saigon, through Operation Babylift, the majority of Vietnamese children were sent to California, Washington, and Texas. For Christopher, he was first sent to Guam due to the medical conditions of some of the children on his flight. There was a, a military uh, a process called Operation New Life. That's where they had camps set up for a lot of the boat people that were coming in and, and the evacuees from Vietnam. 
so when when I met when I met my my father, he was uh, he was a volunteer with the Red Cross. He was a he was a civil engineer, so he actually helped set up the camps and stuff. And when we first met, of course, I didn't speak any English. I just spoke Vietnamese, and it was just a, a matter of uh, trying to trying to do like the hand hand gestures of, of trying to communicate. I offered him uh, Kool Aid because they had Kool Aid at the at the camps and stuff. And then uh, he he actually brought some ice, and it was it was like one of the first times that I had seen ice, and it was just something that was so fascinating to me. After a court adoption process, Christopher was brought to the United States with his father and introduced to his mother and new siblings, three older sisters and an older brother. I, I would definitely say I knew I was adopted early on, but it wasn't made into an issue. It was, I, I don't know, maybe my thinking is an adoption was something when a, a kid didn't want that this family wants you. But like I said, it, it was never, ever discussed in, in that way is, is, as an adoption. It was always, you're my brother or you're my child. The family spent his first year in Washington before settling in Alaska. It was such a wonderful childhood, especially once after we left Washington because we were here for a year. With my father being in the FAA, he was transferred a lot. And so in Alaska, that's where we definitely learned how to hunt and fish and, and basically do everything in the outdoors. I guess you could say it's definitely something that was 180 degree different from what Vietnam was. Here we're looking at this tropical place. Now we're looking at this place that has a lot of snow and ice in the wintertime. Um, so for me, it was it was definitely, uh, I would say it was definitely a big shock. Uh, it was a big shock having to wear a lot of clothes. Um, I know because of where I was raised, um, my parents would get a lot of phone calls because I was still this Vietnamese kid in a little village. Uh, one time we had these like drain ditches, whatever, on the side of the road. And I know I got in trouble one day because I was going to the bathroom in the, dang, in the drain ditch. Because that's just, that's just how it was in Vietnam in the, in the early 70s and stuff. Uh, it wasn't until I came to the U.S. that I started like seeing modern things and, and it was it was definitely a big shock trying to adjust to to the Western civilization. Adjusting to American life meant distancing himself from the reasons he felt like he stood out. When I was younger, I did hide the fact that I was Vietnamese. I didn't want to tell anybody I was Vietnamese. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and if you're if you're a minority then nobody really wanted to speak to you. And so uh, it was easy for me to assimilate into into whiteness because my whole family were blonde-haired, blue-eyed Norwegians. I have a I have a Norwegian last name, so uh, yeah, okay. So I look a little bit different because I tan easily. <laughs> In his teenage years, Christopher would struggle more with his sense of identity. So my father, he definitely uh, was a military man, had that really authoritative attitude. Uh, when he spoke, it was always with a boom. And then my mother was always the soft one, the caring one, the one I always ran to if there was issues. But looking back at it, it was my father really that I was running to and not my mother because early on, my father and I were really close. Um, and then it wasn't until my teen years when I started thinking about who I was and where I came from, that's when I started having a lot of issues, just disappearing from home like for a week to a month and nobody even knowing what was going on. Um, my family would 
freak out because they didn't know where I was. They didn't know if I was dead. I remember one conversation, my mom crying and saying, you're either going to end up in prison or you're going to end up dead in a ditch. She was so mad. Um, she got part of it, right? Looking back as an adult and with the help of therapy in later years, Christopher is now able to recognize the trauma that he and so many adoptees like him experienced in early childhood. With my father working for the FAA as an inspector, he was always gone a lot uh, out to the different villages and stuff. And so my brother and sisters, of course, were all grown up, graduating and moving out. And so it was just me and my mom at the house. And I was always active. And so I was always playing sports. It was either soccer, track and field, basketball, football. And I always remembered that I would always get upset because I didn't have a parent there or a sibling there to watch my games when all my friends had. And so to me, that was that was kind of feeling of, of not fitting in with the family at the time, but still being part of the family. And of course, a lot of it has to do with the abandonment of, of a child when when I was younger in Vietnam and stuff. We didn't know that there was such thing as, at that time, PTSD. Because you, you got, I don't think you can really fathom what type of trauma a kid that is raised, that, that was brought into a, a war-torn country is like. As a three or four year child, it, it wouldn't be uncommon to go out in the street and hear maybe a kid might poke at a dead bird or something. But with a war torn country, it's not uncommon that a kid will go out and poke a dead body or something and kind of laugh about it. And you got to admit, that's pretty fucked up. And so living with, with things like that, and my parents and family didn't know any of this. After Christopher graduated from high school, he went to college at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. His mom and dad moved back to Guam. My parents and I were, were, were rebuilding our relationship and everything was just starting to look good again. And one day I found out uh, my father had, had hung himself. He was the type of person that always had to work and he had retired uh, and he was doing all these volunteer work while he was in Guam. And it's just to the point to where he, he ended up getting Alzheimer's. And in this note, he didn't want to see any, he didn't want to anybody to see him like this because he was always that strong person. I found out that he had, he had taken his life I ended up driving my Jeep into a brick wall because I was so mad. It was hard watching my mother go through this. Grieving while still going to college, in his third year, Christopher was recruited by a bank in Alaska as a systems engineer. He got married and started a family, a daughter and son. From then, a chance encounter led to him being hired as a database engineer for a major corporation, moving him and his family to Seattle, Washington. I had a wife, two kids at the time, and uh, when I wasn't working, I was always with the kids. They were they were 100% what I focused on. Um, but there was three people that I should have been focusing on, and I only focused on two of them. One day I found out that uh, my, my spouse was, was seeing somebody else and I kind of flipped out, got upset, but figured because of the kids, we would try to make it work out. 
And then next day, she just disappeared with the kids. There's a note saying that you'll never see your kids again. As an adoptee, knowing that there's not knowing that there's any other blood relatives, here's these two kids that were that were a byproduct of me. This is what I knew. Um, it 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 hit me hard. Um, I started drinking a lot, um, and then I would say three or four months later, uh, we finally got back together. We decided to try to work it out and. Once again, the infidelity started, and and I just I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I decided to go on a on a drinking binge. Uh, I told my family at the time that everything was okay, and then we're just separated. And in reality, I was I was out every night drinking. I was out every night just just being a total idiot until one day I decided that I, I didn't want to do it anymore. I, didn't want to be away from, from my kids anymore. So I did what I tried to do it in the past. And so I figured that I would, I would try to take my own life again. Cause I just couldn't handle it. I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't do it myself. And that's why thinking of my father's suicide is so hard because he went through it. So I knew if I was going to commit suicide, I, I would have to, be in a situation to where somebody else did it. And so I figured I would do a suicide by cop. That's when I figured I would, I would kidnap somebody, take them on a police chase and then force the cops to shoot me. I ended up kidnapping a child knowing that that would be the biggest police chase that I could probably get. And that would be a guarantee of them shooting me. The victim was random. The police chase lasted more than an hour all over the Washington state area. Christopher came to his senses and fearing that the victim would likely be shot too, he ended the chase and surrendered himself to the police. I kept on dodging all the different police spikes and stuff. And just, I wanted to be over, so I drove over the spikes and and gave up. That's when I got mobbed by the police. That's when I got this nice souvenir of a scar on my chin by the police, but I don't hold any resentments. This is a situation that I put other people in. I always have to think of the collateral damage that I did to the communities, to the victim, to the victim's family, their families. And this is something that that I hold with me will end up going to my grave with. For so many adoptees like Christopher, they never knew they weren't U.S. citizens, and they never imagined they could be deported. Blue Bayou star Alicia Vikander reveals how stories like these and in the film will come as a shock to audiences. To me, when these issues came to light through Justin's script, I wasn't aware that so many thousands of children, I mean, and this is not just an American story, but it happens all over the world. I was just utterly shocked that this, in a legal way, and in any society, would be possible. See the Focus Features film, Blue Bayou, written and directed by Justin Chan, and starring Justin Chan and Alicia Vikander. Blue Bayou is now playing in theaters and on demand. Now, back to Christopher's story. With no previous criminal history, 
Christopher was likely looking at a four and a half year prison sentence. Instead, he received 12 years in prison. Early on in prison, Christopher continued to battle with his depression and suicidal thoughts. He also distanced himself from his family, not wanting his siblings or his children to see him in prison. I didn't want them to see me, no. I, I wanted everybody to just stay away from me. My brother was the only hardhead who would come and visit, didn't have a choice. I would kind of try to disassociate myself with family members. Um, and when it came time to my, my son and daughter, I, I, at first I was writing them consistently, consistently. And, and it was weird because they would write back. And then one day, all of a sudden, there was like no correspondence to them, but I kept on writing. And then three years before I was about to release, I get a, a, a letter from my, uh, my son and daughter who apologized for not contacting me. Um, my daughter had uh, had been cleaning the house and she found a box full of my letters and she found a box full of their letters. Their mother wasn't, their mother for some stupid reason was keeping the letters. She wasn't sending them out and she wasn't giving them to them. Um, so, and then she was stupid enough to keep the letter correspondence between us, of uh, the events that led up to this and stuff like that. And so the kids finally found out why their father kind of went nuts and went to prison. I did 11 and a half years. I did three years in what's called the whole solitary confinement because when I entered the prison system, I knew that to me, that was a life sentence. I would make it out alive. I was 33 years old. I was definitely a jackass for the first six years of prison. About Four years before my release, that's when I realized that I am, I do have a, a window. I, I am getting out. And so with my education and that, I kind of did a flip-flop. Christopher started participating in a new prison program called University Beyond Bars, helping his fellow inmates get an education and provide them with more opportunities when they're released, making it less likely they'll return to prison. While Christopher was nearing the end of his sentence, his entire life was turned upside down. It wasn't until like about a about two years before I was about to get out, I get this call, hey Larson, uh, we're gonna have to lock you up in your cell 23 hours a day. Like, what the hell did I do? I did why do I need to go the hole? And it's like, well, because you're not a you're not a citizen, so you're being deported. And I'm like, deported? What are you talking about? I was adopted. And uh, sure enough. Uh, my, my family was like, just file for, for to replace your permanent residency card, everything be okay. And they're like, there's no way they're going to deport you. You're adopted. You're a citizen. And uh, sure enough, when they came to my release date, they came to the prison to pick me up. They weren't the only ones that came to pick me up. ICE came and picked me up. And so I got a ticket to the uh, Northwest Detention Center, and everybody's kind of freaking out. Like, no, this, this isn't happening. It's really not happening but it is and uh that's when i found out that i wasn't i wasn't a u.s citizen and that things were were going to change things got worse while held at the northwest detention center christopher found out he was being deported to vietnam if you are not a citizen and you serve more than a year in prison then that's considered considered an aggravated felony so it or if you have multiple misdemeanors, that's considered an aggravated felony. 
doesn't have to be violent or nonviolent. So the Department of Corrections here in Washington works with uh, with Immigration Customs Service. So every year they kind of do an audit of who's in prison and they submit a report and somehow my name flagged it that I wasn't a U.S. citizen. I knew I held an, an, uh, a permanent residency card because that's what you hold until you get your citizenship. But we also know the family filed for citizenship and it was just took some, sometimes it takes 10 to 15 years to, for your citizenship paperwork to go through. So it's something that you don't think of. And raised in into a family that, that never has to even think about immigration issues, that's not a topic that you discuss. When families adopted the kid, they think, this is my child. What, why, why do I need to do anything else? I have the adoption records. I have everything else I need for it. So both my parents passed away when I was, when, when I was in the prison system. And so trying to explain this to my brothers and sisters was just bonkers because they're, they're like, you came here legally. We adopted you legally. You're our brother. There's no way they can deport you. You're not you're not an illegal, so don't worry about it. That's kind of the response that we had. And it's, it's something I think, even though I've been issued an order of deportation and I'm waiting on those travel docs, they still have a hard time grasping that this is, this is what reality is, that yes, I will be deported eventually. It's just a matter of time. When you receive an order of deportation, you have to work with the immigration service to get what's called travel docs with the country. And so, I wrote to Vietnam. Uh, I kind of wrote a little document about the disagreement that I had with their communist ideology and that I am not a citizen of Vietnam. I may have been born there at one time, but I've never been there since I was a young child. I don't know the language. I don't know the culture. Uh, and the fact that we don't know who, who my, what my true identity is. And that's the second part is in order to issue traffic, travel documents, you have to have record of identity. So when people are deported, they're able to generally get a hold of the uh, receiving country and, and ask for like a passport or a birth certificate. I didn't have any of those things when I came to the US. So it's it's almost like if I didn't exist. So Vietnam has denied my, my travel docs because they can't prove who I am. And plus there's an MOU between the US and Vietnam uh, anybody that came before 19 or July 6, 1995, they won't accept back. And reason being is because that's the date that the U.S. And, and Vietnam started trade agreements again. Christopher was able to read up on immigration laws and learn what so many others don't know. That after you receive a deportation order, immigration can only legally keep you up to six months. Instead of spending six months, I only had to spend an extra month in there. They finally just got tired of it and, and ended up releasing me. In 2015, after losing the past 12 years with his children between his prison sentence and immigration detainment, Christopher was released and reunited with his daughter and son. One of the most happiest times. And definitely, definitely one of the happiest times. So, and the thing is, we we're so... We're so distant from each other, and now we're so close to each other. They both live a few miles away from the house. Uh, I brought them up here, helped get them on their feet, and they're, they're, they're definitely uh, doing extremely well. While Christopher was making up for lost time with his children, 
He admits to the challenges of maintaining a close relationship with his siblings while battling his own insecurities about his place in the family. I feel different about that. Present day, now as we're adults and my, my parents are passed away, I really think that they're the rock that held everything together. And now it's now it's to the point to where I don't feel that, that family unity anymore. I don't feel that I am as part of the family. I'm just kind of this this thing that was part of the family. I, I did go to prison and it was my brother and sister that were that were there for me to make sure that I had everything I need and 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 when I got out of prison making sure that I was okay and, and making sure that I had everything that I needed to survive. Um, legally I wasn't able to work because of my, my deportation and so it was my brothers and sisters that pretty much paid for my rent for the first year that I was out until I could started working and paid for my groceries or any clothes that I needed. So yeah, I, I definitely think a lot of it, it's just the insecurities in my head. Um, but I, I definitely do think that, that my brothers, my brother and sisters love me to death. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's something that, that I have to deal with that, that I've, I've, I've seek therapy for. In 2016, after more than a half a year since his release from prison, once again, Christopher's life was changed, this time for the better. I didn't plan on meeting him at all. That is Reth Chaisi. I was just talking to a friend. We haven't talked for like over 20 years. I saw her post on Facebook how she's just really under a lot of stress. So my heart dropped, so I figured, you want to just catch up and let's talk. And she said, I have a friend. Do you mind if I invited him over? And I thought, hmm, that's weird. It should be only be two of us. Why would she invite a guy over? <laughs> so start talking away. And there goes Chris. He came along. I just pretend like he didn't exist. I just kept talking to the gal. At the end, when we said goodbye, he's like, well, he's really polite and really nice. Don't know anything about his, his history, nothing. So... And I, I told my friend, I think he's cute. It's really nice. Uh, he's not digging into problems or asking any sort of questions. So I really like that. <laughs> so she gave me his number and we just start talking away from there on. <laughs> and then he, I guess three days later, he told me he was, uh, he was incarcerated. And I started laughing because I didn't believe it. And my jaw dropped and I thought, what? first of all, I'm like, hmm. Interesting. I can't believe I'm following. I'm starting to fall for this guy, and he's in prison. My head was starting spinning and going, what, what am my family thinking if I were to tell them? I know I can't be hiding this forever. And then my son, which I didn't tell him, I wasn't serious about anybody. So I was like, there's no need to tell my family about anything. Down the road, I told them later on, after we got more serious. Of course, my son was fine. Whatever, I'm happy, then he's happy. But with my sister, they got quiet for a little bit. And uh, my heart sank a little bit because they got quiet. They didn't know what to believe, what to say. So as my sister getting to know him more and more, they, they like him. They like the stuff that he does. And he's really fighting for his life. That's what they really like about it. He didn't he didn't just let somebody help him. He just, he just take it on to his own hands and do all the research himself without any sort of help. So support is all he needs. So 
that's what my uh, siblings really like about him. He didn't give up and just continue support and all those people that really needed advice and help. He just, he's there for them. He's a very thoughtful person. That's all I have to say. Sometime I would, I'm, I'm less thoughtful. I'm just like, let's move forward. Leave him alone. He would, if he sees someone's uh, vehicle or someone that vehicle would break on the side or a motorcycle, he'll pull over and just help him, a stranger. Where me, I just gotta get where I'm going. I got time for him, let's go. He will put his stuff aside and help that person. He's very more thoughtful than I am. One time we're trying to, I'm trying to sell my uh, canopy off the truck, hundred truck. I said, let's sell it for a hundred dollars, really cheap. I just want to get rid of it. And this guy came over, he said, see, all he asked is like, what are you going to do with this canopy? Well, the guy just said, oh, well, I'm going to go spend camping time with my son here. And he's just like, okay, if you help me, I'll give it to you for free. I'm like, I'm trying to make a hundred dollars at least or something, but he just give it to him for free. Any quality time with family, something that really gets to him. It, it's something that he missed for 12 years of his kid's life. And that when he, it's like, he's doing that as in a favor of returning what he missed for spending, missing 12 years of his kid's life. So when he see someone spending a, a father wanting to spend time with their child, it's just, it's really, it meant a lot to him because he wanted to spend time with his kids. It's something that he missed 12 years since kids and he really regret it. The, the crazy thing is that our life is like, is like almost a parallel life. Our kids are born in the same month, they're the same ages, they both went through the same type of divorce. She also came here during the, during the Khmer Rouge. Her story is just so fascinating because her story is a mother with eight children running through the jungles of Cambodia in the middle of the night to avoid being caught. And of course, having to go to the re-education camps in Cambodia and then some went to the camps in Thailand. And it's just, it's just, wow. I look at my life and think about, holy shit, I live such a privileged life. This is, this is somebody that actually had to suffer. Despite the happiness Christopher found with Reth, he still lives with fear of having to constantly look over his own shoulder. If I get pulled over by a ticket and, or something, or, or for some reason, if I get caught in something and they bring me to the jail, then automatically ICE will come and pick me up. And because I have an order of deportation and my country won't accept me, then I'm automatically qualified to be in, in indefinite detention. So in other words, more than like I wouldn't get out and I could probably spend the rest of my life in, in the detention. I, I can't worry about things like that too, but I have to, can't let it bother me every single day. If, you know, I have to take it day by day, whatever happens, happens, that's what I think. And I just need to, when it does happen, I just need to be prepared. Like I told him, you know what? I don't mind going and living in Vietnam. I really don't mind. But rather than dwelling in fear, Christopher has used his experience and what he had learned about deportation of adoptees to help support others in similar situations. And his work has had a far-reaching impact. Next thing I know, I'm in Washington, D.C., talking at a congressional briefing on the prison of deportation pipeline. And while I was doing this presentation, somebody from the White House had heard me, and so we got an invite to the White House. Christopher is currently the co-founder of Adoptee Advocacy, along with Anissa Dracido, whose story was heard earlier in this series. 
In fact, all of the adoptees' stories you've heard in this series have Christopher and Anissa working tirelessly to help them. With adoptee advocacy, Christopher and Anissa are working with Congress to pass a bill to get all adoptees in the country citizenship, including those adoptees that have been deported, like Crystal, Joe, Mike, and Susan, and to make it mandatory that adoption agencies help facilitate adoptees and their families through the citizenship process. In the past, Christopher says some adoptee organizations have told him and other adoptees not to share their sad stories or troubled past, that no one wants to hear them, and legislators will be turned off from wanting to help. Right now, our main focus is on working on individuals that have been here for 50 years, 40 years, that have come into the U.S. illegally, that have been adopted by U.S. families, regardless of what life decisions that they made thing is a lot of these decisions that people are making and I, I don't mean to to make excuses but there's a lot of trauma and issues that weren't addressed that lead up to some of these life events I just I just believe I hope that people would think that there's there's people out the good people out there that makes mistakes too I I truly believe people deserve a second chance you know everybody makes mistakes but I believe in second chance uh, instead of deporting them, just have them do a lot of community work. And just, they need, a lot of people do need a lot of support, you know. There's a reason why they committed a certain crime, because they don't have that support. For his work, Christopher has been recommended for a governor's pardon, which would vacate his past criminal charges, lift his deportation order, and allow him to file for U.S. citizenship. It would also give Christopher the opportunity to finally apologize to the victim from his crime. He's amazing. I, I don't understand how he could just juggle and he's just trying not to show it to me, but I could tell that it bothers him a lot. And it's okay. I told him it's okay to just, you know, cry it out. And sometimes you just have to cry it out. And he does try to help so much people out there, and it, it, it really kills him that different people are dealing with different things all the time. And it, it hurt him emotionally a lot, straining him a lot. And it's really hard seeing him going through that. I have a huge advantage. I have all these, I have a lot of tools at my hands. Think of the guys that don't have any resources. They don't have these opportunities. And so I'm fortunate. And so we got to make sure that the guys that don't have these opportunities to do and that they, they do have a chance to succeed. Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America was created on behalf of Focus Features and co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos. Executive producers are Kelly Gardner and Lisa Ammerman. Written and produced by Matthew Kugler. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Consulting producer, Tim Schauer. Additional production help from Haley Mandelberg and Justin Washington. With special thanks to Christopher Larson and Anissa Druzito from Adopt the Advocacy. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, 
Please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts to raise awareness about this crisis so more people can hear these unimaginable stories. Inspired by true events, the new film Blue Bayou shines an important light on the impact our immigration policies have on American families today. Watch Focus Features' new film, Blue Bayou, out now only in theaters.